When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Why are so many dogs suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. After doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. Reflecting on this, I decided to follow her advice, and I noticed profound changes in my own dogs. Enhanced energy, healthier skin, and an overall younger demeanor. It's truly heartwarming to see them so vibrant and full of life. Go to badlandsfood.com hometown and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash hometown. What separates a hero from a villain? At a quick glance, the answer might seem obvious. Heroes are considered the epitome of goodness, championing righteousness and protecting the innocent. Villains, on the other hand, are the embodiment of malevolence, seeking chaos and destruction. But dig a little deeper, peel away the layers of societal norms and subjective values, and the lines begin to blur. Both heroes and villains often have deep-seated beliefs that drive their actions. They are moved by a personal sense of right and wrong, even if their definitions differ dramatically. Their determination can be palpable, with the hero's zeal to save the world mirroring a villain's drive to control and reshape it. This unwavering commitment to a cause, whether for the benefit of many or for personal gain, is a trait they both unequivocally share. Furthermore, charisma is not limited to those who wear capes or wield swords for good. Both heroes and villains can possess a magnetism that draws people to them either inspiring or leading them, or manipulating and controlling them. Their intelligence, too, is often on par. Whether it's a hero devising a plan to thwart an evil scheme, or a villain plotting their next move, the capacity for strategy and foresight is essential. And then there's the fact that not all heroes 
act in pure goodness, and not all villains lack a moral compass. Both grapple with the complexity of their decisions, sometimes making choices don't align with conventional morality, but with their emotions. Love, anger, revenge, jealousy, and pride are catalysts that can spur both heroic and villainous deeds. Both heroes and villains care deeply about their legacy, how they'll be remembered, and the mark they leave behind. And finally, each has a vision for the future, a world shaped by their ideals and actions. Many historical figures have been celebrated in one era and condemned in another. The valiant knight of yesteryears might be the colonizing oppressor of today. When studied closely, the revered king might have been a ruthless dictator. Context, culture, and the lens through which we examine history are pivotal in shaping our perception. Even nations can be heroes or villains. And America has always called itself the hero. But is it? What makes us believe we are heroes to the world? Would you believe me if I said the perception of America by Americans comes from the story of one single woman from the 1700s? And does that make this woman a hero or a villain? Welcome back to Hometown History, where today we're diving into the story and legacy of Hannah Dustin, the first American woman to ever have a statue erected in her honor. And the reason for that honor perhaps explains why America sees conflicts the way it does today. Our story begins in 1657, under the shadowed canopy of Old World, Massachusetts, Hannah Dustin was born into a time rife with tension. Haverhill, where she called home, was a tapestry of intrigue and conflict. A crossroads where English colonists, the French of the North, and Native American nations played a deadly game of dominance. The aftermath of King Philip's War was a harrowing spectacle as southern New England indigenous tribes found their numbers and spirits shattered. Between the stifling grasp of war and the chains of slavery, up to 80% of their populace vanished, while their once proud sovereignty crumbled. As the ashes of war settled and the ominous clouds of King William's war gathered, remnants of those broken tribes melded with their northern brothers, like the Abenaki. Allied with the French, they became a formidable force against the ceaseless tide of English expansionism. And amid this backdrop of chaos, native raiding parties scorched English frontier settlements, 
unleashing a hailstorm of fire, death, and captivity. On the fateful day of March 15, 1697, 40-year-old Hannah Dustin's hometown of Haverhill became the stage for such a raid. Her heart raced, and her motherly instincts were on high alert. She held her newborn close, trying to muffle the infant's innocent cries with the soft fabric of her dress. Each wail seemed louder than the last, an unwitting call to the approaching danger. As the invader's footsteps neared, her mind raced, desperately seeking refuge. With the infant in her arms, she hid in the cramped space beneath the floorboards, praying the invaders would pass her by. Beside her, the presence of her neighbor, Mary Neff, was the only solace in this moment of sheer terror. Their eyes locked, communicating a shared dread that words couldn't convey. But the scent of fresh blood and the anguished cries from outside betrayed their worst fears. The Abenaki were upon them. Their home, once a sanctuary, now felt like a tomb. When their hiding place was finally discovered, Hannah's heart sank, and her worst nightmare was realized as she was dragged out into the cold. She clung desperately to her child, who was now wailing louder than the war drums that beat in the town. The invaders ripped the child from her embrace and killed him right before her eyes. The world blurred, the final cries of her baby forever imprinted in her mind. The captors collected their prizes, the remaining living of Haverhill, and marched toward Canada. Their victory cries cruelly reminded Hannah of her loss, and grief became her companion, along with two other people, Mary Neff and Samuel Leonardson an English boy with sorrow-filled eyes that held stories of his own captivity. Weeks passed, and the trio found themselves placed with a native family. Despite the language barrier and cultural differences, Hannah could see the family dynamics at play, and they were no different from her own family, which had been taken away from her. Still, that didn't lessen her pain or her desire for revenge against those who hurt her. The Abenaki family were lulled into a false sense of security, not seeing the storm brewing in Hannah's eyes. As the household slumbered, Samuel shared his knowledge of wielding a tomahawk with Hannah and Mary, ironically taught to him by one of their captors. Under the cloak of darkness, the trio executed a plan fueled by despair and vengeance. Morning light painted a horrifying picture. Ten lifeless bodies, 
reminders of the previous night's fury. Only an injured elderly woman's escape and a child's frightened flight hinted at any survivors. Fueled by the image of their captors, laying to waste the same way their own towns were laid to waste once, the trio set off. They commandeered a canoe, the river's currents bringing them back to familiar shores. Their triumphant return was an unsettling juxtaposition of relief and horror. As they handed over the scalps as evidence of their retribution, the Massachusetts General Assembly rewarded them 50 pounds. This only served to blur the line between justice and brutality. What Hannah did was not the rage of a colonist, but the rage of a mother. But does that justify it? Who is to decide? In the pages of history, Hannah Dustin's tale remains obscured in shadows. Our primary lens into her harrowing experience is the writings of the renowned Puritan minister, Cotton Mather. In a mere five years, between 1697 and 1702, he penned three distinct iterations of her tale, weaving it into a broader narrative of New England's history. Mather, through his perspective, painted Native Americans as pawns, manipulated by dark forces to challenge the Puritan mission. He showcased Hannah as a beacon of righteousness, propelling others to act against the savagery they endured. The horrifying image of Mather continues, specifically the brutal end of Hannah's child. Its fragile brain dashed against a tree. It's not just a recounting of events, but a deliberate narrative choice. Was it the actual truth or merely a tool to justify the need for Hannah's revenge? Mather insinuated that the young boy who eluded Hannah's wrath was intentionally spared to be a potential companion for their journey back home until he escaped. Nowhere, though, will you see Mather finding fault in the fact that among the scalped were innocent children. Drawing parallels to the biblical tale of Yaol, he likened Hannah to the legendary figure who vanished Sisera in his sleep. In Mather's mind, the ongoing confrontations between the Puritans and Native Americans were more than just wars. They were moral battles between the forces of light and darkness. In this narrative, Hannah emerged as a savior, a champion against the savage enemies that were the Native Americans. Yet as the 18th century progressed to the 19th, Hannah's tale faded into obscurity. It was perhaps a tale that should have remained buried, but Hannah's story had turned into something completely different. And when her story was brought back up in the 1820s, it was given a new meaning once again 
to push a new narrative. So, this rekindled interest was no mere coincidence. Literary titans like Nathaniel Hawthorne revisited her story. The era marked the nation's westward expansion, often at the expense of native lands, reigniting a complex debate on the, quote, Indian problem. Hannah's story in this backdrop served both as a cautionary tale and a vindication of settlers' expansionist agenda. In all this, though, the moral quandaries of native removal did not go unnoticed. Native Americans, often perceived as honorable but vulnerable, faced significant threats from those intent on taking their lands. Amidst these debates, women, usually distant from the political forefront, stepped forward. They saw the native removal not just as a political issue, but as a profound moral challenge. During a time when the nation prided itself on virtue, women became its champions, personified in symbols like Columbia. Columbia, with its roots as a poetic name for the Americas, inspired by Christopher Columbus, had become a significant symbol for the United States in the years following the American Revolution. As the fledgling nation strove to carve its identity amidst global powers, the figure of Columbia provided a touchstone. She was envisioned as a classical goddess resembling the Roman Minerva or the Greek Athena, draped in a flag or dress and sporting a Phrygian cap, a beacon of liberty. And so, the virtue and goodness of the women in America were taken as a reflection of the virtue and goodness of American colonists. It was amidst this backdrop that the story of Hannah Dustin resurfaced becoming a central narrative in the discussions about native removal. Because, if the white women were only trying to help Native Americans, and the natives responded by murdering an innocent child before the mother's eyes, what else could the colonists do but respond with violence to protect their women? It was a good enough justification, a grieving mother's rage in 1697, set the foundation for colonists to exact revenge even centuries later. In a land shaped by myths and symbols, the tales whispered about America were always tinged with an aura of innocence, portraying her as an ever-virtuous maiden. This narrative played a curious role, setting the stage for America's dealings with perceived adversaries. Among these tales, narratives spun by figures like Cotton Mather and Charles Goodrich deeply colored the portrayal of Native Americans. Mather's stories from the 19th century cast them in an unsettling light, depicting them more as monsters than humans. In his 1823 work, 
Goodrich took it a step further, imagining these tribes with a fierce, almost supernatural anger. He crafted tales of these indigenous people reveling in causing pain, where their captives met horrifying ends. Such narratives, while captivating as stories, were inarguably unjust. They painted an entire community of people defending their homes into savages and barbarians, meant to be tamed and sophisticated by the settlers. So, the innocent woman who was forced to watch her baby get killed became a symbol. A symbol for colonists and a justification for their actions. The fact that Hannah Dustin ended up taking the lives of six other children in that native camp faded away by the 1830s, casting her as a hero. The era of the 1850s saw increased westward expansion, causing a surge in commemorations for Hannah. The first tribute erected in Haverhill in 1861 stood as a grand marble pillar adorned with symbols of war and conquest. She was the first American woman to be memorialized in a statue. When men and their contributions to the war and settlements were celebrated, Hannah's bravery understandably stood out. And it wasn't the only memorial she'd get. On an island north of Concord, New Hampshire, there is another statue in honor of Hannah. Constructed in 1874, this monument is strikingly similar to the prevailing images of Columbia, the country's renowned liberty goddess and feminine emblem. The only difference is Hannah's hands wield a tomahawk and several human scalps. The tribute in Haverhill was later disassembled and its remnants were repurposed as a memorial to the Civil War. Later statues honoring her focused more on the boldness of her actions than the actual actions. The aim was to link them with the rising American pride. This connection was likely drawn to harness her story's emotional power, to fuel patriotism, and unite the nation under a standard narrative. But by the 1890s, as the dust of the frontier settled and the Native American population dwindled to near extinction, the nation started to forget Hannah. Her story, once a linchpin for American expansionism, faded into obscurity. It was no longer needed. The hatred for Native Americans had seeped deep into American politics, economics, and psychology. Hannah's work was done. But the echoes of this legend linger on. The portrayal of America as a righteous, victimized maiden remains a powerful narrative, thread in the nation's story shaping its interactions on international stages. 
Whether it's the Cold War, when America deemed itself the beacon of democracy and freedom, or the Vietnam War, where despite significant domestic divisions, the official narrative justified U.S. intervention as a noble endeavor to shield South Vietnam from the aggressions of its northern neighbor. When Iraq invaded Kuwait, leading to the Gulf War, the United States presented its intervention as a chivalrous act. The U.S. also took on the mantle of the global watchdog with its imposition of economic sanctions on countries like North Korea and Iran. There's a persistent theme through all these events. America as the guardian, ever watchful and ever righteous, standing against perceived threats or injustice. Just as the story of Hannah Dustin has been embellished and refashioned over the centuries, so has America's understanding of its own history and actions. Hannah's tale, from the grim details of her captivity to the violent vengeance she took upon her captors, has been told and retold, with each retelling shaping her image to fit specific narratives. Just as Hannah's story has been filtered through various lenses, leading to misunderstandings and misconceptions, so too has America's self-perception by a mix of reality, ideals, and sometimes self-serving narratives. This hidden page of history signifies so much more than Hannah, or the men telling her story could have ever imagined. It reflects the power of stories and the ability to shape and distort and define collective memories. As we delve deeper into buried accounts on hometown history, we must recognize and challenge these selective narratives, ensuring that history remains a beacon of truth, not just convenient retellings. As always, thank you for listening. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.